Hello everyone, this is Mirko Guerrini and I welcome you to the Jazz Transcription Clinic, a monthly interviews podcast where we talk with accomplished jazz doctors about their lives, career and their personal secrets on the art of transcribing. If you want to improve at jazz, stay tuned and follow the Jazz Transcription Clinic on the socials for more content. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Jazz Transcription Clinic podcast. Today is a big honor to have uh, the opportunity to chat and discuss about the fascinating world of transcription with uh, one great artist. He's Australian, but he lived for a long time in the States. He will talk to us about that, hopefully. And uh, let me introduce to uh, the one and only Barney McCall. Hello, Barney. Hey, Mirko. How are you? Thanks for having me today. I'm very well, thank you. And I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today so uh, your list of collaborations and recordings is just impressive Barney I uh, as I mentioned to you before I should do one episode on the podcast just you know <laughs> working out your discography uh, it's really extensive and and a lot of you know big names there so uh, it must have been a, a good trip you know? <laughs> Uh, for you to do that. Yeah, I'm still on it. I, um, I bet you do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it was an incredible journey and I recently read the Val Wilmer book, which is called As Serious As Your Life, which speaks about the 60s new black revolution of music. And it's a fantastic book. But one of the things in reading that book, I started to understand some of the things that I was involved with and had no idea about. I mean, and, you know, you know, working with people like Dewey Redman and, and Billy Harper um, and these people, uh, and they welcomed me in and also, you know, working with the great Gary Bartz, who I still work with um, to this day and who's my mentor. They welcomed me into something that was, yeah, um, crucially important and looking back i had no idea i was just this kid from Rollback who deeply loved music and loved black american music and listened to it so much as a young kid not because any teacher told me that i should listen to things and learn from them but just because i loved it and um and then i kind of absorbed a way of playing somehow like, i can't really explain how i got called by these incredible musicians i did a lot of work obviously but um yeah, the feeling that I that I absorbed, I began to play, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm old enough to have learned that in this music, in particular in jazz music, luck doesn't have a big part in what you do. So if you, if you found yourself in those uh, places and those stages with great musicians, it's because you deserve it. And I have just two curiosity that I would like to ask you on your curriculum. I saw that you have collaborated with the Group Collective for quite a while. 
and also that you have recorded with my friend Fabio Morgera, who also was a member of the Groove Collective. Yes. So have you? So I mean. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, go. Go ahead. Well. Okay. Well. So when I first got to New York in 1989, I got a gig in a restaurant. Um, in Union Square at a place called Metropolis Cafe. And it was myself, Bill Ware on vibraphone, uh, ben, uh, Brad Jones on bass, Jay Rodriguez played tennis saxophone, Josh Roseman on trumpet, trombone, and trombone. Fabio on, on trumpet. And we used to play these sex tech gigs and just were having fun. And we noticed that all these groovy looking people were going downstairs to a dance party that would happen the same night that I was playing, which is Thursday nights. And it turned out that there was this flute player called Richard Worth had bought, almost single-handedly bought this concept of acid jazz where you have jazz musicians playing with DJs to New York and where that was sort of being fertilized and happening was at this Metropolis Cafe. So some of the cats in my band went downstairs and started playing with those guys, which was Ital Shaw, the keyboard player, and Jonathan Marin, Nappy G on percussion. And the Groove Collective was formed in this club where I was playing my gig. And I was friends with all those guys, and they blew up. They became the thing, you know, of New York. Um, and a couple of years later, Ital, the keyboard player from, who was playing downstairs, he wrote a song called Smooth with Santana, which won a Grammy Award, and he blew up. And he, he, he just became, you know, really wealthy. He left the band, and so I joined the band, and through the Groove Collective, obviously I played with Fabio for many years in uh, lots of different jazz gigs around town, but we toured all over the world. Um, and we did all the major festivals. We were being booked by Ted Kurland. It was like the band for a little bit there. And... I played on many records with them. In fact, the last record that I made with them, I wrote like eight tracks on it. And it wow. was nominated for a Grammy. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful to, those, to that band because it definitely opened up so many parts of my musical life. I mean, the Afro-Cuban stuff I learned from them. I learned about current music, postmodern approaches to music. You know, when I first went to New York, I was wanting to be, you know, like Joey Calderazzo or Kenny Kirkland or something. I wanted to be like a post-bop guy, and I love that stuff. But when I went there and I started mixing with someone like Josh Roseman and the Groove Collective, um, you know, through the Groove Collective, I got to work. I started working with Fred Wesley and the JBs, and I did that for 15 years with Fred. So it, it just... It made me see that there's it just there's no rules. It just exploded what music can be outside yep. of jazz. So I was very lucky, and I was also I also worked very hard. That's good, that's good. And yeah, Fabio, I think came back uh, to Florence a couple of years or three years before I moved to Australia. So oh. we we cross <laughs> path each other but i played a bit with with fabio even before when he was in new york he was from time to time was coming back to italy and play a few gigs and i remember yeah uh, we played together in uh, ischia which is from where fabio is coming from and 
Yeah, so I've played, I've played Ischia also with, with Fabio. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and the other curiosity, if you don't mind, is who's Umberto Eco? I, I guess he's not the writer, right? No. <laughs> um, he's a DJ, um, and I met him. He's an engineer and a DJ, so I did a record in Vienna at um, Josawanu's club um, with Josh Roseman, playing Josh Roseman's yeah. music. And we did a week there and made this live album, which is called, I think, Treats for the Night Walker. Oh, no, no, maybe it's after that. I forgot what, it's on Enja. Anyway, yeah. um, he was an engineer and we started hanging out and he, he roped me into some recordings. So when I would be in Europe, I'd do some sessions for him. So that's how I know him. And he's, he's, he's in, based in uh, Munich. Okay, yep. And he's not Italian though. He is German. No, he, is yeah, he, he just, he just, he just, he just stole that, <laughs> stole the name. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's, I think, oh, never heard this guy. I mean, apart from, you know, the, yeah. And all right. Uh, so yeah, for, for all the listeners, of course, I will post, uh, Barney's links and he has a very, good website with all the informations there so you can go and scroll down the discography and go to listen to the stuff but um, the podcast is about transcriptions so I would certainly dive immediately into the topic and uh, for my listeners remember to subscribe to uh, the channel and the podcast it keeps me motivated to do some more interviews and more transcriptions. So now, Barney, if you are ready, I will shoot you the first question. Why do you transcribe? Sure. Well, I, I would like to say that as a young kid, as I mentioned, I loved the music so much. So one of the pieces that I did wind up transcribing in the end, um, I learned to sing because I just loved it so much. I listened to this album, which is Miles Davis' Tune Up. It's kind of a rare album. There's, you can see it in different formations elsewhere, but it's a double album with him on the front in, in a boxing ring, looking all tough. And that's on Prestige. Now, I was obsessed with that album. I can still sing every note from it. And so I want to say, why do I transcribe? It's partly, I suppose I have to say that we absorb the black American tradition of music by transcribing and kind of installing the feeling into us through transcription. And interestingly, you know, I remember distinctly when Paul Grabowski came back from Europe, I'd go and see him play. And I was really struck by certain language that he would use that was similar to this tune-up album, but just bebop language. And it, it, it just sort of the penny dropped for me. And I was like, wow, he's on this. He was on the scene in Europe and he bought like this fire from another tribe and he got deep, deep into this language and I'm learning to speak it. You know, and so, you know, as I was speaking about earlier, like, I feel like 
you know, a big part of the reason that I actually got called by some great players, you know, um, links to the actual tradition, like Gary Bart, um, is because I absorbed these things first by listening and then by writing it out and having a look around um, at what, what uh, the music means when you put it to paper and apply it to the theory. Um, you know, with, um, it's so interesting, like for an example, in the solo, we can talk about it later, um, but the solo on four that I, is a big important solo for me in that whole album. And that's Miles Davis. Yeah, Miles Davis, yeah. the solo on four. He says, um, you know, it's E flat major seven. He says, ba, 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 da, bo, da. And then it goes to E flat minor. And he hits that D again. Ba, do, de, ba, do, de. So that's a little interesting thing for me where I saw the D on E, e flat minor, as an example, um, is an important note. You could say it was a sharp 11 and it's an A flat 7. You could say a minor major or whatever. But the fact of the matter is that D has nothing to do with A flat minor when you think about chordal relationships and theoretical you know, um, stuff. However, D is the most beautiful note in that context because Miles is listening and hearing and executing. And so, for example, why do I transcribe? When I see that, I transcribe to understand how I can break the rules of, of, of theoretical, you know, stuff, you know. And I love... Uh, Gary Bart says, if you listen deeply enough, you can hear the future. <laughs> and it says, right this way, Barney. Um, and so, in answer to your question, in, in a kind of abstract way, I did transcribe that four solo. I've transcribed many solos we, we will talk about. But I'm learning how to break away from the information, and I'm learning what great artists um, what they say about what is given on the page, which is contradictory, if you're thinking theoretically, it contradicts what's on the page in the most beautiful sort of um, wabi-sabi way. Yes. So I'm interested in looking at things like that. I also find structures and stuff, but yeah, I'm interested in, in the idiosyncrasies and, and the, the variations of things that, you know, you... You lift one veil on a mystery and then there's another one there. You just keep lifting the veil on the mysteries, you know? Yeah. And I guess what what catches your interest is always what's behind the notes. It's, it's not just the note. The, the note can be explained very simplistically, I, I, I think. You know, if you see that, for example, that D uh, natural that Miles Davis keeps can be explained uh, with theory in a very easy way. So it's the major seven on, on both the chords. But then why it sounds so cool, it's not so easy to identify and, and explain. So by transcribing, we, I guess, we need to focus on those issues, those matters, why it sounds so cool. Mm. I don't think you can 
many times you can't answer, but you can yeah. learn to follow your ears. Exactly. And you said very naturally, but it's, it's, I, I want to stress it a little bit here in this podcast. You said very naturally, I used to sing along that recording a lot. Mm. And for you, it might sound natural, but sometimes, you know, when you teach young students to do so, they look at you like if you're asking them to fly to the moon, right? While it's a very natural way to learn a new language, to learn to speak, you know, yes. it's just to try and use your sound first with your voice, which doesn't imply you know, certain, I don't know, fingering on the piano or mm -hmm. cert certain articulation on the saxophone, etc., etc. But if you use your voice, you can certainly try to repeat the same sound that you hear. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, it's funny because I had a student the other day said to me, um, oh, could you, you know, I can't, I can't seem to find albums that I really fall in love with that I'm going to obsess over and then learn to sing and like you did, you know. And it's an interesting thing, like, because we're talking about transcribing here, but really it's more like spiritual transcribing that I was doing and then writing it out later. Um, and I learned about uh, narrative. You know, Miles is such a narrator. He's not thinking, that, you know, and train, you know, the, the, you know, they're not thinking about the theory, but they... Oh look, it's a huge rave, and I'll, I'll just go. I'll just try to break it down a little yeah, bit because sure. I, I'll chew. I could chew your ear off. <laughs> but basically, what I've understood after all these years is that you know you have to do all of the left brain work. You have to understand the theory. You have to understand why that D works, the scales, the chords. You have to be able to read music. You have to be able to do all of these things. And then you also have to do all the right brain stuff. You can read poetry. You can sing along with it. You can, um, you know, live your life. You can listen to abstract music. You can do some paintings. You can do whatever you play in the, in the, in the, in the sand pit. And you have people who are on both sides of this hemisphere. Some people... You have some people who only play theory and they can play all the Coltrane changes and at ridiculous tempos. It's so boring, though. Yeah. Then you have free people who can't do anything except express, but they haven't sort of they don't have the rigorous nature of of of, of hard work and, and real sort of intellectual thinking. And my thing is like, I want to be in the middle of those two places, and I call that middle place a place of singingness and audiation that's between those two places and you know the melody is the umbilical cord as Gary Bart says you know and learn it like when I have a student and I'm like okay here's some chords could you play over it and then they go to play over it and it's sort of stiff and they're sort of scared and there's all this weight because I don't know if teachers rack people over the knuckles or just the idea that connecting from your, your feeling within yourself to your instrument, there's definitely a disconnect. And then I play the same chords and I say, okay, sing over these chords. It's so beautiful, right? Because 
they're not thinking about the scales and chords and they don't have the pressure of all these other instrumentalists that live in the world and, and are at the university, for example, around them. Yeah. And they're free. And my whole thing is like, connect to that singingness on your acts. You know, listen and follow that. You know what I mean? Yep. So it, it's such an interesting sort of dilemma. And sometimes I feel like I can actually um, flip a switch for students and they start to sing more when they play. Not that they have to always sing every note they play, but bring this lyrical conversational nature of music into what you do. And where does that music come from? It comes from everything you've listened to. It comes from everything you are. It comes from your DNA, genetics. It comes from magical places. It comes from the present moment. It comes from the cats you're playing with and what they bring up. But be open to it and be there in the present moment and be that. Because yeah. every time you do that, you feel people clap in a way of love and, and gratitude because the music that you just gave them is sort of like a poetry of life or death. Life and death, you know? And if Kenny G plays a top, you know, high B flat on a blues and holds it for three choruses and then, you know, releases it, everyone's going to clap, but it's an empty clap. But you hear Train play Alabama, you don't even clap, right? Because yeah. there's so much feeling in there. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And you did it again. You use one word in a very natural way, but I would like to... Uh, talk a little bit more about it because to me is exactly what you just said it's about getting freedom freedom to expand my vocabulary freedom to express my own ideas with more uh, words available so i want to be free to choose how i'm going to play that g Mm. And that is the hard work, but that, that is also comes with uh, the work on transcriptions. I remember clearly that uh, I, I was still very young, so we are talking about 300 years ago, but uh, um, a good friend lent me uh, Fish Out of Water, Chas Lloyd uh, recording, and I, I never heard Chas Lloyd before. That was the first time, and I was mesmerized by his sound, which I know that, for example, in the States is not uh, much appreciated, you know, maybe now a bit more, but till 30 years ago, Charles Lloyd was considered, you know, not a great jazz player, but this is another <laughs> thing. But anyway, so I spent, I started spending a lot of time experimenting with my embouchure on the saxophone and then I finally, I, I don't think I got there, but I got close enough for me to put that color on my palette. So to me, the, the chase is all there. I hear something and I want to have the freedom to choose whether I want to use it or not. I want to have that option. Mm. And if the answer is yes, I have to be able to do it. That's right. So even sometimes with students, we talk about, you know, those things like a circular breathing. And they say, but is it, you know, useful? Is it necessary? And I say, no, it's not. I, I barely use it. 
but I wanted to know because I want to have that freedom. I want to have that feeling that if I think is required there, I know how to do it. Yes, definitely. So I know how to, you know, express my internal feelings in a more accurate way. So you, you mentioned that word, you know, getting to be free uh, and not to be confused with playing freely, but to get the freedom of choosing uh, exactly and very precisely what you are going to deliver with your music. Yes, well, may I say you don't look a day over a hundred <laughs> and um, like this idea that you, uh, you get free by learning things I sort of see it as like, I want to be able to mix a color on my musical palette quick, you know, um, and everything that I do, like in terms of what you're talking about, learning circular breathing on, on, the, on a horn, you know, students say, you know, is it worth it? Is it something you need to do? I remember Mike Stern once said years ago, the amount of time people, students spend wondering whether they should do something, they could have already done it. And once you do it, you're learning something. You, you, everything you learn, like I said, like, you know, in the present moment, a melody comes that you want to improvise. Where does it come from? It comes from all those things. And it comes from, you know, learning to circular breathe. Whether you even use it or not, you're building awareness, colors, you know, vocabulary. And you just keep doing it. And it keeps growing. And then you sit down to play and People are there, and you don't know what's going to come, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but m if you've got more to choose from, or if something comes and you can you can get to it, um, then that's what we do. You yeah. know, because it's like a kind of yeah, it's like a transmutation of everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you kind of already answered to to the question about uh, what do you bring home when you transcribe? What do you want to achieve? Mm. Well, I remember Mike Knox said to me years ago, like, you know, you could transcribe every Coltrane solo, but that's just sort of muscle memory. I mean, it, it's just kind of like, like being kind of like, you know, uh, parroting something. And you could just spend a lot of time and you don't really get anywhere. But if you transcribe, like if I transcribe a solo, and there's some element in there that I want to understand. What I do is I'll take that element and I'll, I've got a, a, a practice grid that I that devised when I was in my 20s, which is basically I have 12 keys and then I have a random assortment of those 12 keys and I have 12 times 12, a grid of 12 times 12. And I put the metronome on just to slightly um, challenge me and then I play whatever the, the lick is or the voicing or the, the line that I've taken from the transcription that I, that I really respond to. And I play that through all 12 keys times 12. And I put the metronome so it slightly challenges me as if I'm on a, on a bandstand at a jam session and I'm getting my ass kicked. I actually create that, you know, with the metronome and the grid. And so I do it all in, you know, a cycle of fourths, and then I have to negotiate it in random ways. And so the real answer to your question is that I install that color 
that I hear and that I that I'm I'm if it's a mystery or it's very beautiful or you know Bud Powell, you know when you listen to Bud Powell, you know it's so beautiful and clear that when you transcribe it, you're shocked at how deep it is because it almost feels like it just falls out naturally. But when you, when I trans say I transcribe some sort of Bud Powell thing, um, I'll be like, wow, I don't know if Bud's thinking about this in the way that I perceive he is, but that doesn't matter. I'm going to take this concept. I'm going to put it through every key and I'm going to, you know, fertilize this sapling and if it grows, it grows. It will grow in some way. And then it is me, Mirko. It is me. Everything that I really love and that really resonates with me, that I hear, that, that I transcribe, and then shed through all the keys over and over, that is all little parts of me that I'm developing the me yeah. in a way. You know? So that's, that's what I think. That's good. That's good. And... Um... The next question is also very interesting. Uh, how do you choose the solos that you are going to transcribe? Even though I think I can imagine the sort of answer, but please. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, you know, you know, it's really what I really love. You know, what I what I really love, or what is mysterious, what I want to try to try to unveil for myself. And again, you know, if I. I actually, you know, I have this Patreon site, and on that Patreon site, I um, I create lessons, and I go deep into whatever this, the the patrons ask me to do, or whatever I'm interested in. I have one lesson there on McCoy Tyner, um, and I say at the start of that lesson, like, I'm just going to approximate what's going on. I've transcribed a lot of McCoy, and I want to make up my own. Um, rules about what he's doing. There's no way that you can ever work out what McCoy's doing, um, but you can um, approximate things. Actually, there's a beautiful story I said to Gary Bartz, who worked with, um, with McCoy since the 60s, standing next to him, recorded with him and, and Wayne Shorter and, and all, you know, all these. I said, Gary, can you just tell me, after all these years working with McCoy, and um, listening to him and being on, you know, planes with him. And, you know, is there anything you can tell me? Like, what's going on? What is he doing? And, and Gary said this. He said, well, McCoy is a deep listener. He said, if you listen deeply enough, you can play any fucking thing. <laughs> and then he said, listening is more important than playing. And I thought that was really beautiful. Um... But just in, just quickly to, to be more clear about your 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 um your question, you know, I like the idea of finding things that I really love or that I find that are myst mysterious, unveiling them in my own way, approximating what what what's going on, and then again, take it through all the keys. Yeah, I, is I, it? I, I'm a big I'm a I'm a big advocate of like playing everything through all the keys. Because you're teaching yourself to hear. Yeah. Uh, more specifically, is it something that catches your ears when you listen to a track, or is it just the context that uh, you are working on, or uh, something that you think it will 
improve ideas I don't know for example if you are composing a piece and you want to you start to listen to some specific music and then you start transcribing it uh, is that a trigger that makes you uh, feeling oh I want to transcribe this it's all those things and it's interesting you know like you've done quite a lot of these podcasts you've asked a lot of people and I'm not sure how many answers are different maybe there are a lot of different answers and all those things come into play it's a searching um, and it may be that when I'm searching I find some sort of um, device and then I write a whole suite from it it may be that I just want to sound a bit more slick with my bebop chromatic playing so go to Bud Pal and you can get everything you ever desired or, 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 or Brecker or you know um, it may be that I'm just listening while I'm doing the dishes and you know Mulgrew Miller plays something and I'm just like what the hell was that you know or like you know trying to unveil the Art Tatum cluster voicings like there's a version of Danny Boy which is absurd and I mean I have no idea but I have through through Art, Art Tatum for example through trying to understand some of those colors I've come to the understanding of you know diminished on dominant and all the clusters of diminished and yeah so it's, it's just a searching for all those things and and it's just a way to um to try to to understand more and to try to um, absorb things into your own playing and as I said before if I really if something strikes me and, I, and it really resonates with me then that is me I believe and I and I install it into the the hard drive of myself through taking it through the keys and it seems to have worked and I've done this with you know gospel colors that I really love I've learned Afro-Cuban piano styles and, and the clusters in there um, you know if I listened to Scriabin for six months and then went to write something I might sound a little bit like Scriabin yeah of course of course this is what, what we do you know, usually we play what we like and if we hear something that we like, we want to hear ourselves playing that mm. line. And there are so many, you know, connections with the next questions that I'm going to ask you. But uh, the next one will be, uh, what is your methodology? Do you... Um, do you just listen to the track over and over or you immediately take like one of those you know that I still love having which is you know, just an, wow. a, a paper a very old I told you I'm very old but uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about how do you go from scratch to a complete transcription well you know what I have done in the past when I was much younger and there weren't software available there wasn't software available um, yes I would first play the song for weeks on end and listen to it and sing it that's the first thing and then you know it's changed since then then I did write it write it out on hand on manuscript but I prefer now Sibelius um, because um, it means that I can use it to teach my students. It's sort of clear, um, yeah, and yeah, it forces me to, um, 
you know, be, be really clear with it. Um, I suppose, I suppose handwriting it is the same thing, but it, you can press play and see what the phrasing is like. Um, so th then I'll, so I'll listen to it until I can sing every note of it. And then I'll, 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 I'll type it in to Sibelius or play it in bit by bit. And then I'll try to learn to play it. Like recent, most recent one I did was, um, just friends, Charlie Parker, like, um, with strings. Yeah. And I was playing in, um, I went to Brazil out of the blue with Gary Bartz. And when I got there, he said, let's, you know, just friends, let's do it. Cause I've been learning this transcription. And Gary is in his eighties and he's a, you know, he's a bird devotee. And it was so gorgeous to hear that and to hear, hear him play it. So then we were like, oh, maybe we should play it together on the geek. So then I started learning it. And what was the other part of the answer is that I must slow it down first too. That technology didn't exist when I was in my twenties, but so I slow it down and, um, you know, try to capture the feeling and the, and the, and the phrasing of bird, you know, I, I did that also. The one before that was probably, I was trying to cop this, um, uh, James Booker solo, uh, James B Booker piece. <coughs> and talk about mystery, man. I mean, very deep, deep player. Um, so I slowed it down and played along with that sort of feeling like that laid back <laughs> heroin funk feeling that he has and tried to, you know, capture that. And, and then, then, you know, I remember Chick Corea saying, this is a beauty. He said, you know, cause he, he actually transcribed everything he could find by Horace Silver. Hmm. Um, and he said, I would, is I would transcribe a solo, play it with Horace and then turn Horace off, play it and ask, why doesn't it sound as good as Horace? Why doesn't it? And you know, he took in America. I remember a lot of people like Benny Green and stuff. They'll talk about like, you know, oh, I'm absorb I'm absorbing this Chick Corea record. I'm absorbing this Oscar Peterson record. And they would basically transcribe the whole album and, and take it in, you know, like yeah. that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Now that that's good. And, um, so do you also learn it, uh, and sing back or you just did it occasionally or you still do it? Um, I always sing it and, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't done it for a while. Um, and it was really inspiring to see Bart still doing it. And, you know, what I did get from that, you know, and when I'm, when I played just friends, I could see some, um, superimposed colors that that bird was using, you know, and I could see the foundation of further extensions that, um, you know, the train would do or, you know, um, and these are all pre, these, are, these sort of concepts are all pre Ornette because Ornette changed the whole landscape. You know, it was like improvised chords and it was like this freedom that happened. But before then, still in the structural sense of yeah. superimposition, you know, I could, I could still glean stuff from, from Bird. And I do find as I get older, if I do happen to transcribe something, I can glean so much more from what, you know, the great master has done. 
um, and when I was younger, I, I couldn't, and that's because I've just had so much more experience in seeing what things can mean and what the layers of them can be, you know? Yeah, yeah, I understand. It's, it's, um, it's beautiful that by singing we can also um, get closer to the idea of the phrase and uh, for me as a saxophone player is even better because I'm forced to understand anything around the breathing. So there will be phrases that even if you want to sing back, if you don't breathe properly, you won't be able to do it. So you learn also to prepare that phrase in order to have it. And sometimes, you know, I feel sometimes uh, I still feel myself that my mind is thinking a longer phrase, but unfortunately I didn't prepare it, so I didn't took enough air and I have to change plan, right? So by, by singing back, I think it, it puts you on uh, even under, you know, the concept of phrasing and how you can prepare your body to express that phrase. Of course, the challenge is bigger if I transcribe a different instrument that That's doesn't right, yeah. require breath, mm. right? So if I transcribe a piano, then I have to do the opposite work, which is work around, if I'm going to play it with a saxophone, of course, but work around the way that I can still play that line or maybe use one ghost note and take it off, you know, and insert a breath there. But now that's actually that's actually really fascinating because, you know, as a saxophone player, you can learn a lot of subtle, deep things about um, how another saxophone master might prepare phrases, and you know, the the way the fingering and the and the breathing there can be innovative ways to do that i imagine and you're you're absorbing those things unconsciously every time you practice every time you transcribe a saxophone player um you, you can it's like if i trans you know like when i was playing um just friends i was um slurring the notes like 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 bird you know and really trying to get it's so beautiful the phrasing if you really try to get into the del the intricacies of the phrasing yeah. and so i'm learning certain breathing saxophone like things through doing that you know um yeah it's it's and you can understand a little bit more you know how a player thinks and conceives uh the phrasing one of the last transcriptions i made on my channel uh was uh, cannibal otherly on hoping john uh hoping john is a very fast blues uh, that he plays on the MSC album with the, with the quintet with his brother. Uh, it's a very you know bop uh, blues, uh, very fast. And Cannonball plays two choruses where he starts the chorus the phrasing on bar one and terminates at the end of bar 12. So he plays one entire chorus mm, without wow. break. And so this tells me that you need to breathe, you know, properly. Otherwise, you can't do it because there's there's no room to do it. 
but it also tells me how relaxed Cannonball was. Yeah. And I can guess a little bit better the setup, the amount of pressure, because it has an impact. For example, if you use a reed that is too strong, you know, you, you can't do it because mm. it requires more pressure, requires more air. So you, you get a lot of information that are not strictly related to the theory or but yeah. are, are strictly related to the expression to how those lines and phrases are applied. And he does it twice. You know, the next chorus, he does it as well. One long line. And I, I did a bit of work on that solo by slowing down a lot, like to 40%. And I can hear exactly the tonguing at that at that point so i, I also put slurs wow. on my transcriptions and i try to understand because his timing is so gorgeous you know that sometimes you think how is it possible that he uh, used swing articulation on all those eight notes and he doesn't in fact he's very smart and picks you know the right places where to ah. play place the tonguing and the rest is done by dynamics so you're going, you know, to discover a lot of things that, but I believe for, for piano must be the same because um, when you ask yourself, okay, I, I got the notes, I got the rhythm, but how, how was it played? What, what was the fingering used here? And it, it does change. And also the touch, of course, that you you mentioned before the word magic, but there is magic to me in the fact that Keith Jarrett and Bill Evans might play on the same piano and they sound completely different. I'm not talking about, yeah. you know, the, the note choice, but just the timbre. And that's kind of magic. This is something that you cannot learn on the books. You know, or it's not in the theory, but you can learn a little bit with transcriptions. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking about that distinctive. And I, if you, you know, if you talk about Keith Jarrett and Bill Evans, they both were very deliberate in creating that. How they did it would be different. But if you look at Bill Evans, he's a very systematic player, and I often. Beautiful, and they're all and you know, in transcribing Bill, you see this very clear, um, uh, systematic, scientific, you know, George Russell stuff that he's just taken to the furthest and most clear um, degree, so he can just execute. He also was a virtuoso and could read anything. He he, he didn't, you know, he, he had he was gifted, very gifted. But it's very systematic, but I love it so much. And it's not—it's systematic, but it's just almost so much feeling that it just makes you want to cry. Yeah. Keith Jarrett is unorthodox and very much more in the present moment. And I've spoken to Keith Jarrett because he actually came to a gig of mine and I got to actually speak to him. And he told me many, many things. One of the things he said is, um, you know, have you ever just let your hands go? He said, 
if you let your hands go, they'll take you to places that you can't, couldn't dream of, but you can't have those places. You can't quantify those places. Um, they're there and then they're gone. Um, he said, um, he would, he said, oh, so many amazing things. He said, uh, in terms of what we're talking about, he said that he was in Europe and uh, Joe Farrell was sort of bragging that J John Coltrane had stole some of his shit. And, you know, and Keith walked up to the group of people that he was talking to and he said, you know, he might have stolen it, Joe, but he never used it. <laughs> and he also said that he, you know, he had a, a, a time when he was playing um, in in Europe and he realized that um, he could take certain things out of his playing and just stop doing them forever because they, were, they weren't him and they were kind of like corny or whatever. So he was sort of saying that he deliberately was very clear about what he wanted to say and that he wanted to really listen and play in the present moment. And to me, Keith does sound like that. He sounds like, it's, I call it anciently familiar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh... That reminds me of uh, when Kenny Werner came here in Melbourne and gave a couple of uh, <coughs> workshops at Monash Uni. Uh, he showed uh, the students a video of the first concert of Vladimir Horowitz once he went back to Russia. And he said exactly what you what you mentioned and what uh, Jared told you. He said, "Look at what he does." So you you see, Orovitz is very emotional. It's the first time you know he's back in his home country, and he sits at the piano. And he does this, like those are my hands, and then puts the hand on the piano and starts playing. And Kenny Werner said, "If you observe." his face he's just watching his hands doing the job mm. playing you know he's like external mm. it is like he's not driving his hands he's just yeah. watching that everything is going fine you know it's like a supervisor he's supervising his hands and it's it's true it's fascinating it's a very fascinating concept yeah, it's letting go. But I mean, as I was talking about before, like you can't just sit down and let go. You have to do all the left brain stuff and all the right brain of stuff course. as well. And, and that's, what that's what we're talking about. And I believe both Horowitz and Jared did it, <laughs> right? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, just a tiny bit. Ten minutes a day. Uh, well, actually, as, as Jared says, um, oh, yeah, I was born focus you know if, when, when I was born he was oh, I want to focus little baby you know it's <laughs> like you know if you really you know you have to one of the I love Keith's, Keith's quote where he says um, you have to do the deep dark work in these times that are you know technologically convenient and most people won't even know what it is you're doing but it's more crucial now than ever yeah you know yeah I do agree so um, I guess the next question again we already talked about it. The next question would have been, do you write it down uh, or if not, why? But you said you write it down even because you want to use it for teaching and to you know, dig a little bit deep into the mechanic of it. Am I right? Yes. 
Or I mean, I have to say though, also, you know, I suppose other people have probably said this on your on your podcast anyway. But um, you know, if I just type in the name of a song, I can find the transcription of everything now. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm saving time not to write it out, but just to look at it and learn it from what is already transcribed. I mean, you know, like another one I did half of, which I learned so much from, was Bill Evans. Uh, Green Dolphin Street, which is really a manifesto of lock chord and block chord playing in Bill's style. Yeah. And so I listened to it a lot and sort of copped a lot of a lot of a lot of secrets to um, block chord playing and lock chord, lock position block chord and drop position. And um, but when I found a transcription of it there was a lot missing. It was like, there was the, just the husk of it, you know? And I knew when I listened to Bill, the other colors that he would put in. And I'm a big fan of like using the thumb on two notes. And to f I'm also a big fan of filling out the color, the chordal note, the notes within a chord and adding those into your voicing to make a, make a kind of richness mm. as a way to say, you know, I, Bill's sound was so much richer because he's using his thumb on two notes and he's filling out the thing, filling out the chords that he's playing with the with the with the scale. But this transcription was just like the just like the chassis <laughs> of the thing. And I thought, well, there's a reason that you should do it yourself because sometimes these these transcribers maybe they're just doing it fast or maybe they don't hear or. But you know, there's a lot of mysteries and secrets that are left out. Yes, you know, uh, uh, um, absolutely. So my idea is that I can study an already uh, transcribed solo by someone else just for the sake of learning the theory, learning the uh, mechanic of jazz. But I would miss on 80% of it. So if I'm too slow, Maybe I, I just take one chorus, but I can learn yeah. so much more. Yeah. And of course, there are sometimes you, we don't have time. So I, I have several books of transcriptions myself, and uh, but I get it. And because you know, as Stravinsky said, when you listen to something, you are already compromising on a pre-existing compromise which is what the player or the composer heard in his head and then how he played is already a compromise and then the listener get another compromise. Yeah. So what you get in the end can be really far from the original, you know, thinking. Yeah. And so if you don't transcribe yourself, I think you are going too far. You, you are, as you said, you just get the frame which is yeah. which is very sterile and and you don't learn and in fact a lot of uh, people that are transcribing a lot or are learning solos from book and then when when they play they they can't put you know those things into their playing because they just learn a bunch of notes and rhythms basically. there's something else i wanted to talk about also along these lines is one of my heroes is uh, Ben Gerstein. He's a trombone player who did live in New York. He's recently moved to California. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I'll send you a link to this. Maybe you can put it in the notes because it's spectacular. Yep. Um, ben is an incredible explorer and artist. He's a virtuoso trombone player. Plays with a lot of amazing people, um, you know, Dan Weiss and Tyshawn Sori, etc. Um, but he's taught me so much. And one of the videos he has is, and there's so many incredible videos on his YouTube if you get a chance, and they're all exploratory things. Um, he has things like he played Coco, uh, the Coco solo of, of Charlie Parker backwards. So he transcribed it backwards played it on video backwards, then reversed the tape so he's playing backwards and he's playing <laughs> forwards. Um, he also transcribed a Stravinsky um, uh, string piece and applied trombone to every note. It took him months. And he's got the transcription, all the dynamics, all the colors of the instruments that he's um, sort of approximating with the trombone. Anyway, the one that I found really fascinating for your transcription podcast is that he transcribed... Um, uh, a, a late Coltrane solo, but through dance. And so he's got this thing where he's set these parameters. When, when Train plays high, he dances high. When he plays low, he plays low. He dances low. And he dances this whole solo. And he's got an incredible memory. So he's memorized the whole solo in his body. And he's dancing it. And when I asked him what that's about, he said, I'm trying to understand different ways of what Train is doing. I want to talk about and feel the physicality of this music, which is so often just lost on people who are transcribing all day and they don't feel anything and there's no physicality. And there's a lot of lack of physicality in improvised music today as well. I mean, when you think about, you know, marimba, uh, balafon players, for example, from like Burkina Faso or something, and they'll play a ritual piece for like, you know, an hour with ridiculous speed and they're so physical and they're sweating and the music and color is coming out of them like that. And there's so much sort of, you know, sterilized intellectual music and sterilized intellectual ways of thinking about train. But this guy, Ben Gerstein is dancing the solo to feel that as well. He can also play it, yeah. but he's dancing it. And I think that's really fascinating in terms of your transcription, um, you know, uh, excavation. Yeah. You remember when at, at the dawn of YouTube, I remember there was a guy who was mimic uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker solo. You remember that video? No, uh, maybe. Uh, it was a guy that was, it, it was a, like uh, Bird and, and Dizzy trading and he was mimicking and it was like an argument between two oh, people. Oh yeah, I remember, I do remember, yeah. That, that yeah, was yeah, so yeah. well done and, and it went to the point, you know, that... that and, why, and why is that well done? It's well done because it speaks to the conversational nature and the, the, the full language of what we do. Yeah. And that's why it's well done too, right? And he was delivering a lot of feelings despite, yes. you know, not using words, not using, it's just, you know, that's using right. uh, the body in a different way. That's great. Um, so even, even to the next question, 
you have talked a little bit uh, about it, but maybe we can just spend a couple of minutes more. So you said that um, you practice your own transcriptions by uh, putting on the cycle of thoughts and playing in, in 12 keys. Do you have other strategies that you want to give out or maybe you don't want to talk because it's an international secret <laughs> strategies in terms of what i can do with the with the transcription how you practice your solo because a, a further question will be how do you incorporate ideas into your playing but here i'm just talking about strategies on how to practice like play each solo in 12 keys Okay. Live. Well, I don't. Well, I don't play the whole solo in twelve keys. Yeah. Um, but I definitely take aspects of the solo that are interesting to me, and really absorb them through all the twelve keys. But what I will say is, um, I'll just take the solo by itself, and I'll put it into Logic, and I'll get a very slow version, a medium version, and a to tempo version. Yeah. And I'll listen to them a lot too at different tempos and I'll play along with the slow one for a long time and I'll take bite-sized pieces of it you know and um and kind of slowly get that together then take the medium tempo and then take the, the you know the fast tempo because um it's it's a, it, I feel like for me personally however I'm made up um that's a quicker way to absorb the whole thing is to take small slow yeah. pieces so that's something else that I do um, and, you know, in terms of incorporating it, I mean, as I said, uh, it's... That, that, yeah. that would be, yeah, the next question. Yeah, I, sure. I, that is very similar to, I, I wrote a few little, you know, workbooks, uh, unfortunately in Italian, I was still in Italy, based on important figures of the saxophone, and that includes, of course, transcriptions. And there is a bit of the same things that you do. Take a phrase, just one phrase in 12 keys, and you try to, you know, also understand and appreciate how the tonality impacts on, on the feeling and on the sound of the phrase, because you will have also technical issues, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's good, that's great. Uh, if I may show you, I don't know how this is going to work with uh, the video podcast, but I'm going to try anyway. Um, yeah. Let me just, um, nope, not this one. So if I go back to Zoom and share screen, yes. Um, so, do you see what we are seeing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, this platform is called uh, Sounds Lies. And just to let you know that it's a very powerful platform, so you might enjoy it because it, it can save you a lot of time. Because, for example, you can loop one chorus or the first 16 bars yeah of of, uh, of a solo and then the spider you can slow it down here at the bottom 70 percent but you can also 
practice. There is a function called speed training. So you decide an initial speed and then a final speed, increase speed by, I don't know, 10%. Each speed wow. plays twice. You know, it's very powerful. That, but also, amazing. for what you were saying, there is a... Uh, okay, so I have to get out of the edit and I can simply transpose it like that. Wow. And it transposes everything, you know, chords and... And the naturals and everything seem like they, they're not too... It doesn't... Like in, in, in Sibelius, uh, yeah. you get all these double flats and... Uh. Yeah, I, I have done it a bit of work in that regard because I, I'm a bit OCD <laughs> <laughs> or to that extent. So even here, the system was putting like E flat and I change it, of course, to D sharp or, you know, I like to write C flat when actually C flat and not B natural. Mm. Uh, but you, you, you can write a lot and then you know, as I said, you can actually loop, I don't know, a phrase, or we can take just that section that you were talking about with the high D natural. Here it is. Right? Yeah. And you can loop this section yeah. at like... Do you know this solo? And another wow. thing I love here is, you know, D, B flat, G, and then D, B flat, G flat. Oh, it's gorgeous. Back, back to G natural here. So there is also a harmonic relation. Yeah. Um, do you know this solo? Is this one you're familiar with? Uh, I just became familiar because I transcribed it yesterday once you mentioned it. <laughs> Wow, that was quick. Well, well yeah, I mean, it's, there's it's a not, lot of beautiful things in it. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not you know, that hard. That hard. Another thing I notice, and I love it so much, is uh, the use of the E natural here and then further down. So he he plays here like sharp eleven and yeah it's gorgeous right uh, sharp eleven and, and flat nine right and it 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 sounds like he's going to C minor almost right that could be a line played in in C minor and he does it again towards the end exactly the same concept it's kind of but, an altered thing that he's doing there or? yeah but here he's going to towards you know c minor even though it doesn't resolve to c minor but this e natural yeah, i love so much this e natural yeah because what's going on there is the way i see it is this is a perfect example of audiation and singingness where he's listening, like he's, he studied at everything, but he's really listening <coughs> and he's expressing as opposed to dumping d the data 
of um, of appropriate notes as per you know theory. He's listening, and in a very split second, he's expressing. It's like you know McCoy McCoy Tyner deeply listening, and he talk, McCoy talks about this kind of unconscious thing. Like there's no way that he can actually think to make these incredible um, you know sheets of sound. Yeah. But you can, if you really listen, you can, uh, I feel like, sing. Um, and then you and I look at this and make assumptions about the theoretical possibilities or we use the theoretical possibilities to express our love for what he's done because it's unorthodox and it's different. But the fact of the matter is it's like a steam train of present moment expression and it's Miles' personality yes. so much, these phrases. You and know? you have to learn the sound of it. So I will probably make one episode around this solo now that I, I'm learning it. Other things that you, know, you notice immediately is that when the chords you know, are going to uh, like a deceptive cadence, uh, he used to play a very similar phrase, which is the melody, right? And then again here, and then again in this here, and then again here, and then let's look at the second chorus. Here it is. So those things, you know, when when the kids that we teach, they tell you, oh, but I don't want to repeat myself. I say, well, Mate. can I? I'd love to speak about this because yeah. I, I love. I love that you've transcribed this solo. That's incredible. Thank you so much because it is a very important solo to me. Very important. It it almost was my bridge to understanding improvised music. So, one of the things that I've learned through Gary, he has a whole book of aphorisms, and one of them is, for example, um, remembering chords puts a wall up in front of your ears. That's number one. So, number two, he talks about, you know, the melody is the umbilical chord, and if you cut it, then you, you're lost. And if you listen to Miles train, you know, um, you know especially Monk, um, they are playing off the melody. Of course, you know? yes. And if you're not playing off the melody, and if you're just dumping your data onto, onto chords, then every solo sounds the same, and you're not honoring the DNA of the composer, you know? And so when you, when you outline these things here, what Miles is doing, from what I can gather, is he's honoring the melody. It's not a device so that he can navigate that F-sharp minor to B. It's because he's honoring the melody and he's coming off the melody. And when I ask students to play and just use the melody mostly, they're so relieved and they say, Man, I don't have to make so much stuff up, and I'm so, I'm like, exactly, man. The melody is already the composer has already done it for you. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, we should do another episode then, and uh, I'm planning to do one episode on a solo that I transcribed many years ago, and it was one of those big revelation points to me, which is all of you played by Miles and Coltrane in the in the album Round About Midnight. Are you familiar with that? Mm. And uh, I transcribed both Miles and Coltrane on that track. Yeah. And 
Uh, if you remember a bit, Miles starts his solo. And the melody is so Mars is playing yeah and then Coltrane comes with a one of those fire up breaks yeah. and he plays those two fifths interval filled with you know sheets of sound mm. uh, but he's thinking the melody, da-da, and course, Ma yeah. Mars is playing, da-da, because this is Mars, right? And Coltrane is Coltrane, and thus, yeah. exactly. and, and that is incredible. For the whole solos, both the whole solos, if you play the melody underneath, they are always there with you. And this is, this is what Gary Bartz, who is a link to this tradition, yeah. is trying to say. And I'm going to ask you a question now, and it's kind of abstract, but one of, the, one of the aphorisms that Gary has is this, and I want you to see what you think of this. His aphorism is, some notes are so strong, they make the other notes say, wow, we could sound like that. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good, yes, yes, but um, it's funny that we spend a lot of time, you know, learning a lot of stuff that have nothing to do with all those things, and then you go to analyze what they do, and they basically play around the melody, and what is more, they don't give up being themselves. That's right, so the melody and the individual flavor is what they're doing and melody notes tell you what the harmony is and where it's going and if you like if you melody notes are, are so much stronger yes we have to know the chords but if you if you connect to the melody it's like this most beautiful prism that the composer has said this is what it needs to be especially with those old songs that we're talking about and i think you know, many people are kind of afraid to listen because of music paper, because of theory. And this is the saddest thing. And this is why when I um, teach at the universities, especially ensembles, and you've got some kids who think they're hot shots, and you've got some kids who are shy. And I'm like, okay, everyone, play Happy Birthday off the note F sharp. Very few people can do it. Yeah. Okay. And, and I said to Gary, how do I teach these kids? You know, when I came back to this to Australia after being in the States, actually on the bandstand playing. How do I teach them? He said, ask them what their favorite song is and then ask them to play it in another key. Then you've already showed them they can't hear, okay? So all my students come and play Donna Lee off every note that I say, all right? And you can do it slow if you like. I'm not interested in acrobatics or you doing yeah. it fast. I want you to be able to audiate. You hear it and you put it on your axe. And then why is there a disconnect? Because no one's focusing enough, I think, hmm. on, on you know, being able to sing and hear. And why is it that so many teachers can't even do it? You know, and it's like, this is, oh, this is, this is it. Sing it, play it, be able to recognize it and put it on your axe. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Barney. And 
the question is um, are you doing that thing of the like invisible piano because I'm, I'm doing a lot with my student playing the invisible saxophone okay because especially with the with the I believe with the piano is even worse because you have also the visual component yes that we as saxophone player at least we don't see our fingers but for us the the trick is that every single note has one exclusive key mm -hmm. you know that you strike and that is very easy to become a digital player someone yes, that yes. I, I tell you to play the note B and you know that you have to press this yes, finger yes. on the saxophone. Yeah, but you don't hear it. You don't you hear just it. just know where it is. So yes. I start doing with my students playing the invisible saxophone. So I give you a note, which is, let's assume is G. I don't have perfect pitch, but let's assume it's G on the saxophone. And then I say, play the scale. Okay, yeah. And sometimes I, I also do it with the piano. So I I do because I want to hear a sound coming out of my finger. I want to link that. Yes, that is the same thing that I'm doing. But yes, it's a great idea. Yeah. It's the same thing that I'm trying to get them to do. And there was another another idea that I got when I was still studying. I, I've done all my music studies in, in Italy, especially the classical studies. And we had a compulsory three years solfege course, which was in, you know, maybe even too long but it was wow. very good i learned a lot very and, valuable yeah. and there was a lot of yeah. singing involved and this teacher said uh now let's reverse the notes so you sing like do si la sol fa mi re do re mi fa sol la ti do because it forces you to hear a sound. So the, the note name has no value. And then she asks us to name... Well, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. And then she asks us to name the notes with, like, for example, people names. So there was like Bob, Gina, Linda, Frank, right? And then you start hearing, oh, that's a Frank. That's a Gina. You you don't think anymore. We are in F major, so that's the major third. You simply hear sounds, and those sounds triggers information that are just related to the sound. There's no theory in that, and it was it was great. It was. Yeah, that is that is fantastic. That is fantastic, and I I often say that, um, I feel that the Western um, classical tradition of priming young musicians to play we are back on track okay but uh, but but i was just saying that um you know the the western classical um idea of teaching young musicians to play exactly the way that old dead white guys want their music to be heard is okay and it's a fantastic art form but it's definitely detrimental to the way we teach and those two things you just mentioned are such fantastic ways 
to connect with actual music instead of the sort of tragedy of mimicry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, and uh, how do you incorporate ideas into your playing? I think we talked a lot about it. Do you want to add something, Barney? I suppose the only last thing I want to add is that this idea of it's not your show, it's the music's show. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love it. I, I also say something similar, which is, you know, let the music drive you everywhere. You know, you don't have to do much. You yeah. just, you know, let it happen. And the music is there. Not when you're on the you stage. Know? When you're on the yeah. stage and you're actually playing, you don't have to do much. Yeah. You have to do all work at home. Yeah, you know? of course. That's good. So, um, the last two questions, and I... I already thank you for such generosity that you have. Um, what was the most difficult player you transcribed? Uh, the last two questions are a bit silly, are a bit like just to break, you know, the tension down. So, Do you know, the most difficult player, there's two. One is Aretha Franklin. <laughs> now, I, I love Aretha's piano playing. And I've spent many years trying to capture something that maybe I'm even occasionally playing the notes that she played. But her feeling is so strong that I can never capture it. So Aretha's piano playing, just like Donny Hathaway or Ray Charles, it's so beautiful. And I've sat there over and over trying to capture certain chordal things that she does. And I still don't know what they are. Um, so definitely Aretha... And then also Donald Vales. You might not know Donald Vales, but he's a, a Detroit um, old-school gospel piano player mm. and composer who I love deeply. And like Aretha, I can't, I can't work it out. And, you know, one day maybe I'll, I'll get it. But th th strangely, those are the things that I've really tried to understand and not, still not being able to get it. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that. And... The last question is the most silly one. What, tr uh, which transcription you've done is your favorite? I know it's one of those questions I hate when journalists ask mm. you, who is your favorite piano player? You know, mm. we don't have one, but just for the sake of the game. Oh, there's so many, but um, I know. <laughs> I suppose Dusk in Sandy by Bud Powell mm. and somehow yeah, yeah it's very uh, mystical uh, and Bud Powell was a mystical musician mystical shamanic yeah. who were Bud Powell's ancestors his real ancestors who were Miles Davis ancestors like you know who were you know I mean yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's mystical, you know, so there's so many, I mean, anything by Bud is my favorite. Yeah. Because it's, it, that's good. I, that's good. So, <laughs> so Barney, thanks so much for uh, being part of this podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was great rapping with you. And I really, I really am grateful for your dedication to this um, because I think we both are in agreement 
we just want music to be better. I just want music, and I want to support music. Yeah. I don't subscribe to capitalism. I subscribe <laughs> to music. <laughs> yeah. And, and to me, it was just a way to try to understand myself why it has become so difficult to teach the students that the best way to learn this music is to transcribe a lot. Or I would say one of the best ways out of the many. But this is definitely essential that you do it. And I found out in recent years, last five, eight years, that has become more difficult than difficult. Maybe because, you know, as you said, everything is available now. So you think, oh, I can learn it. You know, it's there. But they are missing the point. So the, idea, the whole idea of the podcast is that, first of all, it's something I really enjoy doing. And sometimes I want to share my happiness of, yes. of discovering that thing, you know, that the natural that you mentioned in Miles. Mm. I want to share it with others that can appreciate and, and tell them how beautiful, you know, is to have those tools there available for us, you know, still teaching. I mean, they are all dead, but they are still teaching us a lot. Yes. And so I thought yes. maybe if I start chatting with people who have done a lot and really understand the value of it, maybe we can bring the young, you know, players on our side a bit more and, and put them to do it and let them uh, enjoy and have those moments of, you know, Eureka moments. Well, just quickly, I mean, the phone is destroying focus for young people and my students say oh I've had no time this week and I say okay let's look at your screen usage <laughs> let's delete Instagram and, and YouTube and you know we might sound like some old fogies here but the fact is it's a beautiful beautiful pursuit and it takes focus and deep work and the the outcome uh, fights evil and the outcome of music itself it, it is a very it's, it's, it's crucial and no one talks about it no one really is telling that um but it's a it's an empty if you're if you're musically inclined and you don't do this this focused work it's an empty hard place to, to be you know so i hope that this podcast will uh um inspire people to do that work that there's no there's no nothing you don't get anything in return except for the the, the sun rays of music <laughs> there's no money in it <laughs> <laughs> no definitely not but I, I. But there's there's no money in poetry, you know, and there's no poetry yeah. in money, you know. I I would be happy to buy you a drink and <laughs> have another another chat on it. No, I and... have I have received my reward. The questions <laughs> are my reward. All right, I thank you and thanks again. I'm pretty sure our listeners will be pleased of this episode. Oh, and it's a pleasure. Once again, the great one and only Barney McCall. Thank you. Thank you, America. Thanks so much. See you next time. See you then. Bye. Yes.